0: Thank you for downloading this sermon. We hope you've been blessed by this ministry. If you'd like to give back, please invest in the future of Clear Note Church through our capital campaign, Faithful Through All Generations. To make a donation, visit clearnotebloomington.com slash give. Just a, a brief word to you before we begin the sermon. Yesterday I was talking to... Um, somebody over at David and Carol Canfield's celebration they were holding for Frank and Ann's 50th wedding anniversary, and I learned something I've learned many, many times, which is the fact that uh, when I preach to you, I watch your faces while I preach. And so I'm intimate with you. You may not realize it, but I, you know you wouldn't believe how much you know about what's going on in the congregation. And so I always assume that you love each other and that you know each other. And I learned again yesterday, it's not true. Um, Many of you don't know the other people in this church. And those of you who've been here a while, I just wanna say to you, this is your home. And so you have an obligation to be polite and to welcome and to get to know the people that come into your home. Now, it belongs to Jesus, I know that, but I'm just saying, you don't think of this as being your family, but it is. And so the person I was talking to, I said, look, if I came to your house, you'd meet me at the door, you'd, you'd shake my hand, you'd, I mean, you'd do everything for me. This is your church, you do that to everybody in the church. This is your house, your your dining room table, your front door. But the other thing I want to say to those of you who are newer is... Please tell us what your needs are, tell us what you don't like, tell us what we're not seeing. Um, (laughs) What are you doing here? This is one of my favorite people in all Bloomington, Jim Billingsley. I didn't see you. Jim has been a wonderful servant of God in this community for years. And my heart beats for Jim. You know that, you're his wife and you know that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, all right, I'll stop now. So if you're you're new here, you don't know other people here and there's something that you're disappointed with or something that we're not seeing that you need, talk to us, you might not wanna do it Sunday morning, that's fine, you can do it anytime during the week and call my cell phone, any of us, you can send us emails and some of us will even do text, okay? So don't be timid about that. There are things we don't see, and I want to welcome you. And afterwards, greet people, and find people you don't know to greet, okay? A little bit of family business there. Now, please open your Bibles to the book of Psalms, the fifth chapter, or the sixth chapter this time. You remember a couple of weeks ago, we were studying Psalm 5, and it had a musical notation at the top. It said for the choir director, remember? And then it said for flutes, or I said it meant for wind instruments. Well, this one is similar. It has a musical notation for the choir director. So this is supposed to be given voice to. And so, what our musicians did this morning of writing it in such a way that you were able to sing it, that's what this psalm is for. The people of God, the choir director, is to lead the people of God in singing this. It's not just to be spoken. And then it says, with stringed instruments, and then it adds specifically the eight-string lyre. A lyre is a miniature harp, very small little U-shaped thing. And then it tells us who is the psalmist this time, and it's David. So it's King David, all right? So now I will read uh, Psalm 6. Oh Lord, and I know we've already had it read once, but... um, Take certain chapters or books of scripture and put them on your iPhone. So every time you get in your car or on the tractor, so that you learn a book backwards and forwards. You can't read scripture. You can't read Pat the Bunny too often. So why not scripture? So we'll read it twice and we'll sing it at least twice. So we'll have this four times this morning. This is the word of God. And it is eternally true. O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am pining away. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are dismayed, and my soul is greatly dismayed. But you, O Lord, how long? Return, O Lord. Rescue my soul. Save me because of your loving kindness. For there's no mention of you in death. And Sheol, who will give you thanks? I am weary with my sighing. Every night I make my bed swim. I dissolve my couch with my tears. My eye has wasted away with grief It has become old because of all my adversaries. Depart from me, all you who do iniquity. For the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. The Lord has heard my supplication. The Lord receives my prayer. All my enemies will be ashamed and greatly dismayed. They shall turn back. They will suddenly be ashamed. This is the word of the Lord. Isn't this a perfect statement? of how we pray you know we don't go to God filled with ourselves do we we go to God filled with acknowledgement of our sin we know that God is angry against sin that God hates sin you know we love to quote scripture saying God hates divorce But we're not so quick to say God hates sin, (laughs) because then everybody gets pulled in with the lasso, don't they? And so when we go to God, and we see David here going to God, and we see he starts his prayer, oh Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your wrath. David is not saying that God is wrong to be angry with him. David is not accusing God of sin in his wrath. David's just like you. He knows that he deserves nothing good from God's hand. Right? And that's how we go to God in prayer. We know that anything good we get from him is against nature. (laughs) You know? It just shouldn't be. We know that God rightly would condemn us to hell, to banishment forever. We know that we can't face death chipper. We know that we can't walk into the presence of God presumptuously. But instead, we do what? We we enter boldly. Why boldly? That's what it says to do in Hebrews. Well, boldly because we're so aware of our sin. And yes, women as well as men, the young as well as the old. Uh, We often talk about the unborn children in their mother's wombs being innocent. And they are in the sense that they've not yet begun to consciously choose sin. But even in the womb, they're corrupt because of their federal head, Adam. They're under God's sentence of death in the womb. There's no man that can approach God in prayer without thinking to himself something along the lines of verse 1, which is, O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your wrath. This is David's confession of sin. Now, the minute you say that, what the Bible scholars begin to do is try to single out what sin it was of David's. And since we know something about David's life, an awful lot of them say, this must have been another one of those psalms that David wrote after he had sinned with Bathsheba and after he had murdered her husband Uriah, right? So we know Psalm 51 is his penitential psalm, his repentance psalm, specifically for that occasion because it it tells us that. But here, David is obviously acknowledging God's wrath and his anger against him and asking him not to consume him with it. And so it must be the same thing, right? And this is again what we saw a couple weeks ago where we said, well, you know, David has enemies and so it must have been when Saul was chasing him or it must have been when Absalom was trying to usurp the kingdom from him. it's like, we don't, (laughs) you know, we don't have to come up with some huge sin in David's life for this to be the prayer. This is our prayer every day. When have we not prayed this? So you look at this and you think, here's a man who knows God. He knows the holiness of God. He's not using alcohol. He's not using, I don't even know what the psychotropics that are used today. It used to be Valium. Maybe they still use Valium. Adam isn't here today, so he can't tell us. He's not trying to dull his senses. This is not a man that spends his time on Pinterest or Facebook or Twitter. Because Facebook and Twitter never... Reveal to us the wrath of God against ungodliness. Facebook does not help us to grow in our self critical capacity. I mean, just saying the words is laughable. I go to Facebook every morning so that I can see how sinful I am, and it's so helpful. Right? Are any of you laughing? It's ridiculous. Facebook flatters me, right? 25 years ago I read a book called The Closing of the American Mind by a homosexual University of Chicago philosophy professor named Alan Bloom. And Alan Bloom said that in the academy today in higher education, colleges and universities, that the, the, the opposition to truth in the academy, it reduced the academy to, to being intolerant, fearful, judgmental, and opposed to logic and reason. <laughs> now, come on, laugh. I mean, what does the academy think it does well? Well, it thinks it's tolerant, inclusive, very, very non-fearful, you know, and it, it it's 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 trade is truth. That's it's it, if, <laughs> that's its reason to exist, right? Right. And Bloom said, "Now, and in the middle of this book, he talked about some of the toxic influences that he saw within the academy. And one of the things he talked about was the terrible destruction." of the inquisitiveness of his students that had been caused by their parents' divorce. That it had destroyed the initiative of his students. That there was no longer a sparkle in their eye and intellectual curiosity in his students. And then he says, you know what their parents do to him? He says, so their parents take him to a psychologist to try to heal him. And then he says this, this is a direct quote. You'll never forget it. He says psychologists, though, are the sworn enemies of guilt. And then he talks about the earbuds. And he talks about how music and earphones have cut off communication between people and fellowship and community. So that everybody's in their own world, right? Now, now mind you, this is an unbelieving philosophy professor at University of Chicago who's a homosexual. And he says, everybody's drugged with music. Now, this is true. And 25 years later, a quarter century later, it's infinitely worse. Because if you don't have earbuds on, you do have a smartphone in front of you. My blog now, I think it's at 60% smartphone versus computer. And so everybody's consuming the internet where? Well, you walk into Fountain Square Mall to go to the Apple store. I I did this about a year ago. And right inside the door, nearest the store, is this little gathering of couches in a circle. And there was a whole group. It was a Saturday morning. There was a whole group of teenage women, obviously together, obviously all friends, not one of them even looking at each other. They were all sitting there on their smartphones texting. And you wonder, do they really love their mothers that much? (laughs) I mean, who are they texting? Each other? They're their friends. And this is our world. This is our world. There is no place that you can go and escape The noise of your music, of your Twitter feed, of your Facebook, and of everybody flattering you and telling you how great you are. And life is just a succession of copying postures. This is who we are, people. This is not them. This is me. This is you. And so we go online, we cop a posture, and our posture. Because we're Christians is, don't consume me in your anger. Don't destroy me with your... No, that's not our posture, (laughs) right? That's not our posture. Our posture is bold, strong, beautiful, hip, mostly hip. And so this psalm is completely contradictory to everything we consume in our lives. We have no patience for this psalm. If you don't see that, you're a liar. (laughs) This psalm is condemning to us because of the rarity with which we pray it. That's the truth. Remember how I started by saying, isn't this all of our prayer? And I kept expecting that some of you would go, nah, mm. you know, that one of you would have the faith to raise your hand and say, not so much. But the truth is that we could probably, those of us that know each other, we could probably name who in this church actually does pray this song. And you know it would be a minority. None of us have any questions Well, I won't say names, but I could say names, you know? And then I'd say, now, who's godly in this church? You know what? It would be the same names, right? David's godly. David's a man after God's own heart. David mourned, mourned over his sin. David knew his sin. David knew that his sin angered God because God hates sin. David knew that God's command to him is, Be ye holy as I am holy. David knew the standard that God expected of him was not what passes for normalcy on Facebook. David had other standards in mind. Be ye holy as I am holy. And so when David went to prayer, he wasn't chipper. I mean, can you imagine a more ridiculous word to use about any psalm of the 150? Well, that's a chipper one. But isn't chipper the perfect word for Facebook? I mean, I don't know why they didn't name it chipper. Maybe chipper Reed has a corner on it, I don't know. So David comes, O oh Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your wrath. Notice that David doesn't say um, guilty with an explanation, guilty with an excuse, kind of like guilty. David isn't saying, "Oh Lord, you know, like, sort of, you know, like, don't, like, as it were, you know, like, rebuke me in your anger." You know, like chasing me in your, like in your, you know, like wrath. You ever notice that people do that? When people don't want to realize the weight of what they're saying, their conversation gets weighted with the word like. I was talking to a man who's in bondage to homosexual desire this last week on the phone. And in talking to him, there, there came a point where he was in play, you know, like in play, you know. And the minute where he was trying to weasel his way through a doctrinal issue that kind of seemed to be smelling like him needing to change his position, all of a sudden his language was peppered with the word like. And so I stopped, and I said, "Now, now stop, right there. What have you just started saying? every other word. I don't know what. Well, you know, like like." David does not cop the posture of victim. David does not say that there are extenuating circumstances. He does not deny that he deserves the wrath of God. David is not a victim. Right? Right? So many people are angry at God. As a matter of fact, I would say that that's one of the most common bondages of men and women who are in homosexuality they find themselves having to fight a sin that most other people don't have to. They ask God to take it away. They continue to have to fight against that temptation. And so one day they say, they shake their fist at God, and they say that's the end of it. And that's true for an awful lot of people who see their sin and accuse God of being the one responsible for the temptations that lead them into their sin or for what they've suffered. And so they stop praying, don't rebuke me in your anger. Don't consume me in your wrath. Instead, they start shaking their fist at God. But there's no shaking of his fist on David's part. There's none. David is direct, forthright, and um, if you understand me saying this, he has a godly simplicity. And you all recognize, if you've had children, what David's doing here. He knows that he's he's got it coming. And he just asks his dad not to do it real hard. What a sweet prayer to go to God with. You know, please, I know you have to discipline me, but don't, you know, don't do it in wrath. You know, don't. In Jeremiah, we read Jeremiah saying something similar where he says, um, he says, correct me, O Lord, Jeremiah ten twenty four. Correct me, O Lord, but with justice, not with your anger, or you will bring me to nothing. Don't rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your wrath. Verse 2 Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am pining away. The expression translated here, pining away, is, I think, in the King James, it's uh, for I am very weak. And so um, what this means is that uh, what what the Bible scholars talk about is they talk about a, a, uh, a flower that's on a very slender stalk and it's dried up and it's fading and it's about to die. And so that's what we think of pining away. David is so weak that he's barely alive. He has no strength. Be gracious to me And what is graciousness? Graciousness is unmerited favor. Graciousness is unmerited favor. What does unmerited mean? You don't deserve it. Graciousness is God's being kind to those who don't deserve it. So grace is you getting something that you don't deserve that's good, okay? And David says, give me something I don't deserve that's good. Because why? Because I'm pining away. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am pining away. And then heal me, O Lord, for my bones are dismayed. And why would he be speaking of bones? Well, dismay is fear, right? So he's saying, my bones are fearful, my bones are dismayed, or my bones are shaking, trembling. Why would you talk about your bones trembling? Well, because you wouldn't talk about your flesh trembling. You wouldn't talk about your flesh being afraid, because that's what flesh is. Flesh is weak. Flesh gets cut. Flesh, but bones? You know, when you get down to the, to the substructure of a man, that's his bones. That's what holds everything together. And David's saying that his bones are fearful. In other words, that's how deep in David is his fear. His dismay. Down to his very bones. And so he asks for God to heal him. Then in verse 3 he says, And my soul is greatly dismayed. And so in his description of what's going on with him, he's going from his body... That he's weak, that he's pining away, that his bones are fearful, shaking, dismayed. And then he says at the beginning of verse 3, my soul is greatly dismayed. So it's not just his body, but it's soul. And so what do you see here? Well, you see that God has made us holistic. We can't separate our souls and our minds and our bodies. There's no way. And so, if I were to say to you, um, sin is what produces all sickness. There is no sickness that anybody has ever had that has not been caused by sin. And everybody goes, "Ah," you know, no, you don't mean that. Say it a little bit differently. I say, no, no, no. There's never been any sin of any person who has ever lived that has not been caused no, excuse me, no sickness that has not been caused by sin. And you say, well, explain yourself. And I say, okay, what I mean is that when Adam f- fell, we all fell, that God had warned Adam that in the day he ate of it, he would surely die. And so the very day, that they, the moment Adam ate the forbidden fruit from the forbidden tree, he began to die. And all sickness is the road to death. Right, And so you know that we look forward to heaven because in heaven there's no tears, there's no sickness, there's no death, there's no temptation, there's no sin. But here in this life, all those things exist because of Adam's sin. So now I go back and say there's no sickness anybody's ever had that's not the result of sin. And you say, okay, cosmically, I'm with you. But don't you dare get specific on me. And I say, okay, let's get specific. Because the strength of any argument is in its specificity. So now you tell me all the sicknesses that you have because of your sin. (laughs) And you say, okay, I'll tell you, but don't you tell me. There's a godly young woman in our church who started being a nurse a little while ago. And... She came home and said to her parents that the vast majority of the people in the hospital are in the hospital because they're either blank or blank or blank or blank. I should tell you that I'm one of those blanks. (laughs) And of course, they're all moral failures. Right? And I think she was saying, I think she thought she was saying something. but she's not saying anything. If you have a woman that miscarries her baby, miscarries her baby, is it not true that most of those women immediately have feelings of guilt? I know it's true because I sat in a car one time with a bunch of women driving home from a presbytery meeting, that's when we had women elders, (laughs) and I listened to them talk about their miscarriages and I was as if I didn't exist, I was just driving, driving Miss Daisies, you know? (laughs) And little pictures have big ears. And it was amazing, the spiritual pain and the guilt and the fears that all of them talked about in connection with their miscarriages. Now, were they right? I think a lot of times God does deal with women. I mean, Satan deals with women in a way that he accuses them when they have miscarriages. It's an unbelievable, vulnerable time in the life of a woman. Um, But why do they do that? Well, the reason is that Christians have faith that there's nothing in life that comes to us that doesn't come through the hand of our loving Father. And David is not saying to God, don't discipline me. He's just not wanting to be consumed. He's saying, too much, too much. Please relent. Be gracious. Please heal me. Please, right? And so, listen. We're holistic. You can't just go, well, that's my body, and that's my soul, and that's my mind. We are integrated. God made us integrated. And... The fact is, if you give your life to bitterness, come on, we all know what bitterness does to the body, don't we? Don't we all know this? I mean, I can show you women in this church, I can actually take you to their faces, to their eyes, and I can say, see, that's, that, that, that's bitterness. I can show you the wrinkles bitterness has made Wrinkles. And you say, well, yeah, but wrinkles are beautiful. I say, okay. Listen, David is not separating body, soul, and spirit here. I'm not saying they aren't separate parts, but he is showing. That when we are under the burden of God's discipline, we get sick. This is what happens. We don't want to eat. When you've had horrible sin, have you noticed how you lose your appetite? It's just, and you can't sleep. You can't sleep. You vomit out of your body the sin. You vomited it out. And so David is just showing us this is true. He deals with his body. He deals with his bones. Then he says, my soul is greatly dismayed. And then he stops and he says, but you, oh Lord, how long? And that's really David's quit claim. That's his, I shut up. But you, O Lord, how long? In other words, at that point, David says, That's all I have to say. But you, O Lord, how long? Do you know that this was, all of us have um, what are called, um, the simplest words are eluding me. (laughs) So, what's the word? Oh, I can't remember what the word is. Here, just a second. Oh, here it is, just a sec. no, no. Well, anyhow. John Calvin, this statement was John Calvin's favorite exclamation. You know how some people will say, like my sister, she says, oh, dog, you know, some people say, oh God, they should never say that. Maybe dog is God backwards, I don't know. But David, I mean, John Calvin would say, oh Lord, how long? He'd say it in Latin. Isn't that interesting? And it's a wonderful statement because again, it demonstrates humility and meekness before God. How long? How long? It's not rebellion. He just says to God, But you, O Lord, how long? Now, at this point, let me make an obvious statement, and that is that this does not sound like the victorious Christian life, does it? But you, O Lord, how long? And then he says something that's really quite offensive, really. He says, return, O Lord, rescue my soul. And if you think about that, that's, that's, what, that's what some would call a negative confession. And Christians really ought not to do that. Now, I'm being facetious. I, in other words, I'm making a joke, okay? Tongue in cheek. Christians really ought not to say, ask God to return to them because, well, we had an elder at this church once who came to me after we had used Psalm 51 in worship and he said, we should never as Christians use Psalm 51 in worship. And I'm like, what? And he said, well, because it says, take not your Holy Spirit from me, cast me not away from your presence, take not your Holy Spirit from me. And God doesn't do that with Christians in the New Testament that, that can, can't happen. That was just Old Testament. Well, think about Joel Osteen. What do you know about Joel Osteen? And you should always compare what you're reading in Scripture to what you normally think and live. Compare it to your friends, compare it to the television, compare it to your Facebook page. And so I I think about Joel Osteen in Lakeland. And I think, what would happen if King David went into Joel Osteen's church there in Lakeland and he prayed this prayer? I mean, come on, everybody has to be honest and admit that there's not a chance in, right? I mean, it reminds me of when my dad preached at Willow Creek, right? He got done and these young whippersnappers who were just graduated from college came up to him and explained to him that a, a particular construction, a verbal construction he'd used, was, was not appropriate for their market segment. I can just easily imagine them coming up, you know, Joel coming up to, to King David and saying, you know, King David, that's not really helpful. That's a negative confession, and we're not big on that here. That's not our market segment. I mean, really, come on. Isn't that true? You know, but it is your market segment. It is your prayer, right? Right? How could you go to a church where they wouldn't have any patience for praying Psalm 6? And and when it does come to the issue of the appropriateness of saying to God, return, O Lord, okay? Here's what we see in the New Testament. Ephesians 4.30, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And then 1 Thessalonians 5.19 Do not quench the Spirit. Listen, all of us know that there are regularly times in our lives where our sins have quenched the Holy Spirit and we have been disfellowshipped from God. There's not one of us here that denies that. That is a part of the victorious Christian life because that removal of God and his Spirit from us is what makes us hunger and thirst for him. It is the only thing that causes us to repent. Right? It's God's kindness for him to remove himself from us, for him to remove his spirit from us so that we will return to him. It's not permanent, but it's necessary and good. And then David says something that's weird, he says, for there's no mention of you in death, and Sheol, who will give you thanks? And we read that and we think, what on earth is going on there? There's so many non-sequiturs in scripture, you know, things that you come to and you think, that doesn't follow, what? All of a sudden we're like going down to death and to Sheol, right? Now I want to read to you what Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist London preacher that Joe and Eleanor were in his church for years when Joe was serving in London, the tab. And this is what Spurgeon says about that statement of David. He says, "Um, Oh no. Oh yes, good. He says, And now David was in great fear of death, death temporal, and perhaps death eternal. Now, if you could get away with asking the Lord to return at Lakeland, you could never get away with explaining that David was in fear of hell. Can it be that the man that Scripture labels a man after God's own heart was afraid of death and hell? You know, I've told you that all my life, I've wanted to read Boswell's Life of Samuel Johnson, so I spent a lot of trips this last year listening to the tapes, or the tapes, the files. And it's fascinating that at the end of this humongous uh, biography, you know, it's like 45, 50 hours of listening. At the end of it, the last Brian what would you say 200 pages maybe it's a large it's this constant chronically of Samuel Johnson's fear of death and often the theme comes up that this man and this man says they're not afraid to die and Samuel Johnson just always says liar liar pants on fire noses as long as a telephone wire but he'd have a more eloquent way of putting it every man fears death It's what Elizabeth Cooper ross said. She said the the reason that we look away when there's an ambulance by the road with a stretcher with a sheet over the top of it is we immediately say to ourselves, thou and thou and thou and thou, but not I. Right? David is afraid of death, and David is afraid of hell, I believe. And Spurgeon says that's absolutely one possible interpretation of it. God uses fear. I know we all think that God only uses candy today. That he's changed his tactics. But God is pleased to use his um, absence, to use discipline, and God's pleased to use fear. I can't tell you how many people in describing to me how they came to believe in Jesus Christ will specifically talk to me about their realization of the danger they stood in coming before the wrath of God and being cast into hell. Often they'll have literal visions of going to hell or of their loved ones going to hell. And they believe. And if you go to the the first public sermon of the church in the day of Pentecost, what do you find everybody who's under the preaching of the word at the end of the day of Pentecost doing? They cry out, what must we do? They're completely under conviction of sin and in the fear of God. And yet today, I fear that it's accurate to say that the one thing that the Reformed church today is absolutely opposed to is any fear of God. How have we gotten to the point where we think that Christianity is the absence of the fear of God? How have we gotten to that point? And so we read a verse like this where he says, for there's no mention of you in death in Sheol, in hell, who will give you thanks? And we think, well, that's, that's like one of those blip moments, you know, where the computer's Sort of got bad code. David blew it there. I don't know what he's talking about, but let's keep going quick. David fears God, and scripture says there are two conditions that you don't ever want to find yourself in one is without shame, and one is without fear of God. If you want to find in scripture some of the most intense condemnations of wickedness, It is they have no shame and they have no fear of God. There is no fear of God before their eyes. David fears God. David is a man after God's own heart. David fears God. Are you with me? And so David is saying, look, I'm not any use to your glory if I'm dead and if I'm in hell. Would you give me life so I can give you glory? I want to give you glory. So keep me alive. Don't send me to hell because I can't willingly give you glory in hell. My eternal suffering will glorify you. And you're all sitting there right now going, what? Yes, I said that. And that's, that's what Spurgeon goes into in depth at this point. He says it's not that you wouldn't glorify God in hell. It's not that those in hell don't glorify God. But it's that David's saying... It's my will to give you glory. I must be alive and I must be able to do it of my own free will for it to glorify you the way my heart wants. I want to glorify. That's what's going on here. There's no mention of you in death and Sheol who will give you thanks. David wants to praise God. He wants to praise God among the living. He wants to glorify God. Now, he says I am weary with my sighing. Every night I make my bed swim. So you again see the body matches the heart, right? That you cry, that your, your sheets just get sopping wet. You sweat, your tears. That's David. Every night I make my bed swim. I dissolve. My eye has wasted away with grief. About a year ago, huh, you know, your eyes tell you how old you are. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but about a year ago, all of a sudden, I got this huge floater in my right eye. And ever since then, you know, it's disconcerting. It's it's become difficult to read, it's become difficult to see at a distance, because all of a sudden, there's just the complete center of your eye is gone. You know, it's gone because there's something called a floater, and they can't do anything about it. David says his sin and his suffering under the discipline of God has reduced him so that his eye has wasted away with grief. It has become old because of his adversaries. In other words, David is prematurely old because of his sin and his adversaries. Now, here come the adversaries. When I was a little boy, there was a railroad track at the, at the foot of our... Um, um, there was a railroad track at the foot of our block, just down half a block from our house. And the railroad tracks ran across a very busy road on a trestle and then came to a, to a park. And so I would go down to the railroad tracks as a little boy and I'd hop on the train and I'd ride it over to the park. And uh, I didn't do it often, but I did it enough times to know that depending on how fast that train is going, um you you have to be careful because a train doesn't know you want to get on and slow down for you. Right? So if you jump and grab the ladder, you know, and you best do it right because if you don't you will die and the train won't cry. Okay? And so, you know, if it's going too fast, you grab it, and it just about yanks your arm out of, well, that's what's going on here, where David has us all soft, all agreeing that this is the prayer we want to pray, agreeing that this is our condition, agreeing that, yes, we have wet our couches and our beds with our tears so that they're sopping wet, that that we are prematurely aged because of our sin and God's discipline of us, right? And all of a sudden... We grab the train, and here's what the train does to us. Depart from me, all you who do iniquity. And we're, we're saying to ourselves, where did that come from? <laughs> you know? I thought David was all plaintive and mournful and pleading, and, and now it seems like there's a little bit of the warrior here. You know? Depart from me, all you who do iniquity. Isn't that weird? Where did that come from? He's having this intimate relationship with God, just laying himself out, saying, help, help, help. And all of a sudden, depart from me, all you who do iniquity. Where did that come from? Well, the answer to that is that David, David is so, so identifying himself with God. This word Lord, all caps throughout the whole text, is Jehovah. It is the name of God. All right. David is so identified with the only true God that the wicked hate him. And what do the wicked always do when a man suffers? (laughs) This last week I was driving to Indy and I looked over a field. All the vultures were circling. The vultures circle where a man is about to die. David is pining away and the vultures come in. And they hate David because they hate God and because David belongs to God. And all of a sudden David sees the vultures are starting to dive. They're going to take some pieces out of him. And he summons the strength to do what? Well, to put distance between him and the wicked He's completely with God. The wicked hate him because he identifies with God. And so he summons himself just enough to say, what? Depart from me, all you who do iniquity. And David is a warrior. And then he says, for the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. Remember that scripture tells us that the Holy Spirit takes our words and expresses them in, in, in words that words can't understand? And that's, that's, that's the expression of weeping. You don't need a translator anywhere in the world. If I start crying, the Chinese ex- understand me as well as the Haoleys, the white Americans. Weeping is a universal language. And David says to them, For the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. What a beautiful thing to simply be quiet and weep with God. And then he says, The Lord has heard my supplication. And then he said, The Lord receives my prayer. You notice this three times? He's heard me. He's heard me. He's heard me. Depart from me, all you who do iniquity. He's heard me. He's heard me. He's received my prayer. And then all my enemies will be ashamed and greatly dismayed. They shall turn back. They will suddenly be ashamed. Spurgeon says this. He says, The best remedy for us against an evil man is a long space between us both. We're just, we're just way too comfortable hanging out with the wicked. And you say, I I don't have any friends that are wicked. And I say, oh, you do too. Your Facebook friends are filled with the wicked. And you read all their bile. And you write for them. And you try to write in such a way that a wicked man will approve of you. You know? I just don't want anybody to not like me. And David's a warrior. David knows what's at stake. He knows his soul is at stake. And he knows what's coming from him. And so what he says to them is, depart from me, all ye workers of iniquity. And then he says, the Lord heard, the Lord heard, the Lord heard. And then he says, and so Spurgeon says, the best remedy for us against an evil man is a long space between us both. And then he says this, he says, repentance is a practical thing. Don't you hate it when your husband says he's sorry but then doesn't do anything? You know, it just drives you bonkers. You know, if you're sorry, like kiss me or clean up the kitchen or pick up your boxer shorts or something, you know? And Spurgeon says repentance is practical. And it's practical with God. And in David's case, it was practical by him forcing a distance between him and the wicked that were cackling and hissing at him and circling for the kill. Then Spurgeon says this. He says, weeping is the eloquence of sorrow. Isn't that beautiful? Weeping is the eloquence of sorrow. Have you ever heard, has anybody ever said to you that you need to do the work of mourning? M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. Anybody ever said that to you? It's absolutely imperative that you do the work of mourning. Of mourning the loss of your innocence in sin. Mourning the abuse of your body by your father, by your brother, by your uncle. Mourning the loss of the virtue of your daughter at your relative's hands. Mourning the death of your unborn child. Mourning the death of your child. Mourning is hard, hard work. And oftentimes the only way to do mourning is with tears, weeping. And if you're the kind of man who won't be weak, you're the kind of man that every time you meet somebody else, it's a you know what in contest. You're the kind of man that doesn't trade in stupidity like confessing your weakness to your wife and asking her to pray for you. You're the kind of man that just walks all over your sons. You're the kind of man that doesn't do weakness you're not doing the work that the Lord has called you to. Because if you don't do weakness and and, and no-brainer stuff like the death of an unborn child, you let your wife grieve and mourn, how on earth are you going to grieve and mourn over your sin? We have to weep over our sin. We have to. If you don't weep over your sin, you don't know yourself. You don't know yourself. We live in a frivolous day. The superficiality is 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 more than I can bear. And it is completely opposed to mourning and to grieving, and especially over our sin. But there's nothing more beautiful than going to God with tears. And that is the strongest defense against wickedness. How many times I have been with, and I'll end with this, how many times I have gone into a family where there has been sexual molestation of a son or a daughter when they were young. And I'll talk to the perp, the predator, and then I'll talk to the predator's wife, And initially, there'll be denial that she knew anything was going on. And I'll know things that I'll bring up to her. I'll know particular nights and what that daughter said as a little girl to her mother. And all of a sudden, that mother knows that she's been caught. And she'll then say something like, often it's something like, well, he told me that he didn't, and I believed him. And then you say, well, what about this time with the babysitter? And the babysitter's father or mother called you. Well, but I talked to him, and he said, and what you realize is that she has not done her work of mourning. She hasn't grieved. She had a precious daughter, a precious daughter. who was was harmed, corrupted. And she chose to tough it out, stiff up her lip. By God, she wasn't going to cry. Listen, people, the rain comes down. And it's the reign of the Holy Spirit. It's the reign of our tears. And we give ourselves to grieving. We're sinful. We live among sinful men. And so we cry. Don't you remember what it said about Jesus outside of Lazarus' grave? he was he was furious furious angry unbelievably intense and then it says what it says jesus wept i always say that the, that the only thing that feminism has given men in the past century is permission to cry And then I look them in the eye and I say, and I never needed it because my Savior cried. Every true man cries. David, how about him, huh? Was he a man? Was he a man's man? (laughs) Well, of course, yeah, yeah. Let's come to the Lord's table.